Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I have Dave Cohen with me, known as a broadcaster, BBC TV writer, BAFTA winner for his Horrible Histories songs, novelist, and more. So you can see why he is the perfect person to have written the complete comedy writer, because he has so much practical experience in so many different comedy fields. I'm very excited to dig into some of them today. But before we start, Dave, is there anything else that people should know about you and your work? Um, well, that, that was a very, very nice uh, covering uh, area there of uh, the many things, uh, I suppose. Well, I've, I've, I'm a bit old, really, so uh, I've, been, I've been at it for 40 years. But I'm just coming up to my 40th anniversary of uh, my first ever radio writing credit. So, That's amazing. Um, yeah, so I, I, I couldn't I, – I, I'd be a bit modest, really, from your, your wonderful introduction. I don't – honestly know everything about comedy but but i have written a book about Mm. writing if you want to write comedy so uh that that's uh that that's my sort of area i suppose really but um thank you thank you for that lovely introduction it's a tremendous amount of experience though and really really practical experience which is really valuable um and Mm. i could ask you so many questions but where i actually wanted to start because you do have this broader perspective is i wanted to ask about your work with other comedy writers because in the uh, introduction to the complete comedy writer so many different like really renowned comedians give you uh, such like great props for the great notes that you've given them and how useful it's been so i wonder when you're in that capacity giving notes what do you think are the kind of things that you're seeing um that other people might miss or patterns that come up that why they're like thank you dave for the notes they were so helpful <laughs> uh thanks yeah I, I, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms but yes i suppose um uh, partly i'm looking at things from um the, the perspective of having written a lot of things myself and a, a lot of people who do script uh give script notes uh for instance there a lot of uh, producers and script editors some of whom are, are brilliant you know but they, they haven't kind of been they haven't been in the sort of down the mine as it were of uh you know being stuck inside a, a script and and i suppose what i bring um a, a, probably an empath, empathic feeling of knowing. I, I, I know I've made, we all make mistakes and it's, mm. it's so much easier to look at someone else's script and say, this needs doing, this needs doing. And then you go back to your own script and you go, Oh, I, I was making those exact mistakes as well. So I guess I, 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 I arrive with that, um, mm. empathy really. And that might be what, um, uh, what, what, what helps, um, writers when I when I, they they get my notes, that makes total sense, absolutely. And one thing that I was really intrigued about um, in the book too is that you say um, you're quite here. If you want to write for TV, children's is a good place to start. And I've never actually heard that advice given before. I think it's super interesting. My husband's worked in um, children's TV as a performer for a long time, and I have an interest in that industry, but I've never heard anyone give that advice. I wondered if you wouldn't mind for people that also have never heard that, why it is that you said that. And obviously you have so much practical experience from Horrible Histories and more. 
I think uh, I start with that um, by talking, uh, th- th- thinking about the, the, the negativity that um, comedy writers will often bring or people bring mm. when they talk about kids' TV. It, it, it sounds like it's a lesser thing, um, and, and it certainly is a, a lesser thing uh, from a financial point of view, as your uh, partner will, I'm sure, attest. Um, but... It's it it is very much the kind of the the, the, the sort of the poor relation of of, of, of other TV, but and that the, there are two things that I would say. The first thing is that actually writing uh, for kids is really not that different to writing for adults. Obviously, there's certain language you're not allowed to use, but you should be able to uh, communicate if if what you're doing can communicate to to uh, adults, you should be able to communicate most of that to, to children as well and, and vice versa. And um, I'd say probably one of the, the, the proudest moments for me, I suppose, as a, a, a writer was um, one of the one of the songs that um, I got asked to write for Horrible Histories was uh, to write about Darwin's theory of evolution. And I had absolutely no knowledge or uh, understanding of science, the whole of science. I was a real non-science person, um, so I had to learn the theory of evolution, uh, work out how to explain it to ten-year-olds, and then and then turn it into a spoof David mm-hmm. Bowie song. Changes, which was probably the easy bit, really, um, compared to that, and um, that that was a kind of moment of realization to me that actually, Oh, first of all, science isn't this thing that's really impossible to understand. It's just that I never took to it at school and never thought I could do it and stuck with that. But also I thought actually communicating to, to children is, is a, it's just a brilliant, it's just a brilliant uh, way of doing things. The second thing that I wanted to mention is that, variety of things that you get to do on kids tv um and in fact the model of uh narrative comedy for kids tv is very similar to america so Mm. you get to do uh 13 episodes and they're all they're a bit shorter but you know you can you can really develop a much bigger narrative idea using uh kids tv uh, than you can in in um what I call it, grown-ups, grown-up TV. I mean, you're very lucky if you can get a series of six mm. made now, and sometimes it's four, um, and most of the time it's rejected anyway. Very few things get made, really. So um, that those for those two reasons, I think, yeah, kids' TV is definitely a really good place to to investigate. That's super helpful. Thank you. I'm afraid this is going to be quite a whistle-stop tour because I want to like drag out so much of your expertise. But I wanted to hop next to radio. Um, because we had the lovely Lucy Lumsden on the show too, who has a, a ton of commissioning and producing experience at a really high level. And she mentioned radio and um, gave the example of Miranda, um, like a really iconic show that's in Britain, how actually the roots of that were in radio. And you have so much radio experience and so many writing credits. I wondered if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to that, how it was helpful in terms of um, your comedy and potentially also how that links to like different ways of finding a comedy voice. Yeah, I mean, uh, radio 
is in in the same way that children's is is a is a way in. Um, radio is the more traditional known way in, um, but it is a very clear there, there is a very clear pathway, and it hasn't changed. Um, I mentioned at the start that it's actually it is literally forty years since mm. uh, I got my first uh, writing credit. And it was on BBC Radio, and it was for a show called Weekending. And um, you turned up at Broadcasting House, and um, or, or this little building off the side of Broadcasting House on Langham Street, and you just walked in, and anyone could walk in off the street. And on a, a Tuesday afternoon, they say, "Okay, these are the stories we're going to cover," and all the commission writers will do these things. So you lot, this bunch of reprobates and mostly blokes, unemployed blokes, coming in from the wet and cold, really, I think, as much as anything. Um, and you could write one-line jokes or sketches and get them on the show weekending that was on the radio 40 weeks a year. Um, that It's 40 years on. That's still the way that you get stuff made. There are lots of uh, topical radio shows now. There's... Uh, 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 Radio Scotland, BBC Radio Scotland makes a show called Breaking the News, which is on 30 weeks a year, and you just write um, you can write one-line jokes for that and then um, there's a show called The Skewer which is a much more kind of uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's much less traditional, I mean it's, really, it's like a kind of incredible oral uh, soundscape of topical comedy, which sounds pretentious but actually it's really quite extraordinary it takes a while to listen to 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 get what's going on but it's basically it's using stuff that's already out there people talking and you and it juxtaposing them against things they said before where they're basically contradicting contradict themselves or or songs that that sort of express more what they're what what these people are doing or saying or tv shows about uh spoof TV shows and they so there's all manner of ways of of picking up these credits and a lot of people say well I'm not really interested in topical comedy Mm -hmm. but actually I was remembering um my first sketch for this show weekending and this was so it was 1983 and it was about about this um something about uh British relations with China and Margaret Thatcher had appointed this man called Percy Craddock to to uh, sort of deal with these relations, and I wrote a sketch on the purely on the basis that there was a famous TV chef at the time called Fanny Craddock. Mm. It wasn't even spelt the same way. So I wrote a sketch about Percy Craddock's recipe for Chinese relationships. So it was just like a parody of a, a TV show. The the, the actual news the the the, the beef or the meat of the story was kind of irrelevant it was just a stupid <laughs> stupid sketch and that's still what it is really you just make take things that are in the news and turn them into stupid sketches so i think radio is definitely worth looking into radio for that and once you get known as a writer of stuff for the radio you get to know producers and these are the people who go on to make TV shows, and in my case, I was very lucky. The producers I worked with, they went on to make TV shows. They went on to become head of comedy at Channel 4 and that sort of thing. So these are really good relationships to make when you're starting out. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us that insight, and happy anniversary for your radio career. Thank you very much. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it. So how did – I mean, there's – 
we we don't have time to trace all the things that have happened in the middle because there's been sure. so many extraordinary things. But how do you get from there to um, more recently writing a comic novel, uh, stand up Barry Goldman? Well, I started out when I was uh, well, even before I started out, um, it was always my ambition to write novels. So mm. in my teenage years, I. Um, I, I uh, when I was at uh, a student at uh, Bristol University, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe in the sort of late 1970s. And one year that I went up there, I met uh, a guy, another student, um, who happened to be Rick Mayle. And uh, I saw his show he was doing with Aid Edmondson at the time. And in fact, there were a some other friends of theirs who were, who were friends of mine from school. So we had these sort of people that we knew in common. And I went to see their show in the Edinburgh Fringe. This was in 1979. Um, and it was called Death on the Toilet. And it was uh, it was a kind of uh, a prototype, I'd say, of bottom, I think, really. But it was, it was just extraordinary. I'd never seen anything like it. And it completely... It was like a sort of life-changing moment, I'd say, really. And um, from that point, I I was distracted, really, from uh, wanting to be a novelist or whatever, and I thought, I want to perform comedy. And so mm. um, eventually I, I, I became a stand-up comedian, and I did that for about 10 years, and then I went into comedy writing. And there was always, there was always a reason for not writing the novel. And eventually... Uh, I, I decided, uh, well, you know, I'm, am I ever going to write a novel? <laughs> you know, am I uh, am I going to go to my grave saying, oh, that one thing I always wanted to do? So I thought, I saw it, I'll write it, and it's kind of a pretty much a a, a, a very heavily fictionalized version of the story of those first Edinburgh festivals that I did in the late uh, 1970s. And I've just finished the follow-up now, which is coming out, which again is heavily fictionalised autobiography, and that covers the next the next period after that sort of the early days of alternative comedy. Awesome! So much great material in there as well, and and it lends such a richness. Um, so I've read the first one, lends such a richness to everything, or the setting, the characters. Um, I felt mm. like yeah, it's a, a book that I wouldn't be able to write, but that you can because of your specific experiences. And I love in yeah. the complete comedy writer that you say yeah. that you sort of say highlight the importance of the emotional truth you can bring to an idea. I wondered if you wouldn't mind saying a little bit more about that as it relates yeah. to either your own novel or you can broaden it out to other comedy work if you prefer. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, interestingly, that in in the the stand up Barry Goldman, the first of the the, the books, the, the stand up books, there's um, a, a lot of the stuff is real, but then a lot of what's made up is about the relationships he has, the various. Uh, coming to terms with understanding about feminism and and how to how to be you know how to how to go out with people and how how to behave well as a man and he doesn't always do that and it it none of those particular relationships are are real but um they contain a lot of the emotional truth of what i went through and i think what what I mean by emotional truth, I mean, it's really important when you're being a comedy writer because there's so much competition. But the, the one thing that you have 
uh, and you you need to investigate really I would say is your own uh, your your own emotions your own uh, character your own flaws I mean without beating yourself up too much but I, I think the number one requirement to be a comedy writer is uh, to have self awareness. And um, that involves investigating your emotions quite deeply and admitting that you were not the wonderful person you thought you were or that you're not the brilliant, as brilliant at these, these things as you think. But then also you're not as terrible a person as you think in, in, in other ways. And um, because the best comedy characters, I think, the main thing that you can say about them is that they are totally lacking in self-awareness. So the more you the more you examine yourself, I think, and your own flaws, the more you can bring that to, to comedy characters and in, in a way that's fresh, in a way that people haven't uh, spotted before. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Um, and... You, I mean, that partly answers the question, but you also, you give so many um, great examples of characterization and you pull out examples from some of my favorite shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Lovesick and Call My Agent. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind either from those shows or a different one if you prefer touching on like what you think, and it's not an easy question, but what are some of the core ingredients that really help to make a character comedic? Because you have some great vocabulary around this. Um, yeah, and you know it's not much different in comedy and drama or anything else. You have mm. to ask um, the, 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 the first question that I always ask of any character, and, uh, and you should always ask of your character, is uh, what do they want? And then the second question is what is stopping them? And you know you apply that to any. Uh, anything, a movie, uh, a drama, whatever, you know, a Marvel superhero. And you can answer those questions really quickly. What Mm. do they want to save the world? You know, what's stopping them? The evil XYZ character, Um, you know, James Bond, um, Harry Potter. So so they're all, there's, you know, so if we're talking about the classic, there's a protagonist and there's an antagonist. So, the main difference with comedy is that the antagonist is usually a flaw in that mm. person's character. So what do they want and um, and what's the obstacle? Um, and so the obstacle is in themselves. So that's that's the first point. And then it's, you know, then it starts to get difficult and you go, mm. well, okay, let's get specific here. And you need to break down what do they want. We all how we all do it which is you know what what are what are the things that we want the Mm. external things um some people want money some people want love some people want power uh specific things and that's their external want and then you ask the question what's their internal want and that's where you get quite interesting that's where the self-awareness comes in i think because that's often the answer to that question is I just want to be heard or Mm. I want the respect that I never had when I was growing up. And it it usually ties into some kind of terrible childhood uh, uh, slight that, that, 
has stayed with you and has been exaggerated over years to make you more kind of uh, uh, it, 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 it sort of fills your head and doesn't allow you to get on with your life and that's often the obstacle so someone say like Basil Fawlty who mm. he wants he wants to run uh, a very posh hotel you know um, but from his internal point of view he's obviously his all those years of being slighted by people who think they're better than him so he he he's basically always he wants a better class of clientele and you know when you're running a hotel you don't get to choose you know the guests can be as rude and as nasty as whatever as long as they're paying the bills you have to be polite to them and so so it's that internal slighting that turns basil fault into this wonderful character who who just upsets everybody around him even though in his mind he is absolutely right to be doing what he's doing i'm sorry to pick such an old classic as faulty tower it's a classic yeah yeah it's sort of always it's always a good good one to come to but i had an interesting uh, thing happen i was working with a writer and we were talking about what does this character want and i was trying to explain the difference between an external one and an internal one and i said just for example let's say your character wants a porsche mm. and um and immediately it sort of sparked a thing with uh, and uh, yeah yeah and it wasn't you weren't then writing a sitcom about a character who wants a Porsche but you were writing about a character you immediately saw what does it mean to say when somebody wants a Porsche it means well it means they you know they value money and status and uh you know they're kind of they're probably going to not be sensitive you know they're going to be mm focused and doing their own thing so you, you don't have a scene where the guy who owns the porsche who guy who wants the porsche is going past a garage and looks longingly through the window at the porsche you don't need that but it, you bring you bring that to every conversation that this character's having you bring it to the to to the scenes and so that's it's like a subtext that's that's mm. informing everything so it allows you to to make these characters say stuff and 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 without without saying out loud because i need a porsche i want a porsche and also that comes from that as when i have a porsche you'll all respect me the internal mm. so yeah and i i suddenly found that i i sort of tried it with and every, every time i mention it someone goes oh yeah and it's like even when it's a character who doesn't necessarily want a porsche it helps mm. people to go Oh yeah, they want that physical thing. That's going to be, that's going to explain what they want, why they are, why they act like they do. Sorry, yeah, that... the Porsche. I get very excited about the Porsche. I have to tell everybody <laughs> about it now. No, it's a, it's a no, it's a great example. And I'm, I'm as you're saying it, I'm thinking and I'm applying it to different characters and different shows. Thinking, oh, what is it for them? What is it for them? And also, what is it in my work? That's great. It's lovely and clear. Mm-hmm. Love it. And um, a bit of a left turn here, but. Because you've worked in so many different contexts, and my understanding is that you have worked with different writing partners, you've worked really collaboratively, but also now you're in this position of also being a novelist, which we, I'm also working on a novel myself. And uh, although, yes, yeah, so quite, I know. <laughs> and compared to those, it sounds like more of a solo pursuit. So I'm really curious, like, with their vested self interest about how 
you've managed um, the process of the novel in terms of being able to get feedback that's useful and particularly for how the comedy is working? Yeah, it's been um, the most interesting time, I would say, for me has been writing novels because uh, it's um, in, in every way it's you, you you're kind of free to do what you want mm. and um in, in many ways that's that can be a tyranny because when you know you have to write a one-line gag and you know that if you want to write for the scottish radio show that i mentioned earlier breaking the news you know your gag will be approximately 40 words long and the setup will be this, and the the complication will be this, and the punchline will be that, and and a sitcom, a, a thirty minute sitcom, you this has to happen in three minutes, this has to happen in six minutes, this has to happen in twenty minutes, and so you know I actually almost prefer somebody's putting me in that straitjacket. I I, I like I like the the structure. Um, but I suppose the most recent thing that I've been doing, apart from writing for uh, sitcoms and things, was was the, the songs. And uh, mm. so, a, a horrible history song is usually about two hundred and fifty words. So every word really has to count, and it isn't just it isn't just coming up with jokes and punchlines and things. It's 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 using a word that that sounds vocally okay and and that will, will will hit a beat you know you can't you can't use some words because the second syllable will fall on the wrong beat so you really mm. are cutting and cutting and cutting um and actually it was a kind of big revelation as I was writing the novel the big thing and it was a, a friend of mine who's who's quite a successful novelist gave me this advice and it hadn't made sense to me until that point she said uh you're always cutting just mm. cut 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 and that's uh it seems uh counterintuitive when you're you know you think that a song is 200 words 250 words and a novel is 80,000 words and you think well you know but actually yeah you know, the, the you're doing the same thing with a novel really as you're doing with everything else you for instance in a sitcom you know you're you're entering a scene as late as possible you're telling the story you're coming out of the scene with somebody going at the end of it oh i want to know what's going to happen next so so it's the same principle really i think with with novel writing but then it's whatever it is, 30 chapters or 40 chapters, and it's a story that's taking place over years rather than hours or days. So, yeah, it's. I, I suppose the biggest difference really is being able to hold all of that stuff in your head at the same time. Now, a lot of people talk about using things like Scrivener and, mm. uh, you know, and, and, it, and it works for a lot of people. I don't know. I've tr- I have tried to do that, but I find that actually writing most of my stuff with pen and paper <laughs> that kind of keeps manages to keep it all grounded and keep it all kind of the, the structure there in my head. But it is. I mean, I don't know how you you feel about that because I'm not. I wouldn't say I am a novelist. You know? mm. I'm still yeah. finding my way. But uh, where 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 would you say you are, Danielle, with your book? 
I would say I use both. So I do yeah. use Scrivener, but I also mm-hmm. love analog too. So I do also write on paper. And I think um, mm. just for those practical reasons, if I also run a business and do lots of many other things. So my laptop is a place where many things happen. And sometimes I do just find it a quieter space, no matter how many things you can turn off and put into airplane mode in terms of associations yeah. and being able to free associate and draw things out and map things out. I do still write on paper too. So yeah. yeah. And how far are you with the book? Where are you? Yeah. So I'm, so I've had, um, I'm redrafting but quite mm-hmm. majorly redrafting. So I'm in a sort of restructuring because the first, well, it wasn't even the first draft. I go back and do multiple things as I'm going along, but the first version, I will call it, mm-hmm. um, the characters and the overall structure of it going across three days and the tone of it and the themes, all those things have stayed. But there were some things that I just wasn't happy with structurally and things that I got feedback on that I kind of knew weren't working and people had to sort of pinpoint in terms of that. So where I am right now is redrafting um, to work towards a different ending because it was really the ending that was I wasn't happy with either. Right. And now there's, uh, yeah, it didn't, it's that thing with, because it's a fast and it happens mm-hmm. very quickly, it comes out the gate right. very hot. <laughs> right. And in terms of being able to like maintain that pacing and work towards an ending that's satisfying, I just wasn't there. But it right. wasn't a case of just like switch this up, tweak this dialogue. It, I needed to sort of do some restructuring. So I'm in that process now of redrafting, restructuring, working on my new uh, ending. Yeah. Great, great. Oh, well, good luck with that. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, that redrafting stage. I mean, there are there are times with redrafting when it's just a pleasure and a joy, but there are other mm. times when it really is like wading through treacle. And uh, I'm mm. just just coming through that for my for the second book which will be out quite soon the barry barry goldman the wilderness years that's uh, so uh, um we'll see we'll see how that uh, how that works out and how was that process for you compared to writing the um the first book and what do you think over the course of the two um are the things that surprised you or you found particularly challenging about bringing comedy into prose the first book was uh, as I mentioned, really, it was kind of for forty years of uh, uh, of, of emotional uh, mm. kind of urge and desire to write a book. So it's uh, the first draft was very, very autobiographical. Autobiographical. It was full of my opinions and lots of things that I was always excited about at that age, all the music that I loved and the the, uh, the comedy and the football. And so it was, uh, it took me quite a while to, to, to uh, get rid of all that stuff. So once it was out there on the page and once I got the first draft done, I could see, no, people aren't really that interested in knowing more about your views about Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, you know, you can. Uh, yeah. that, that's not really anything to do with the story. Yeah, but I get so excited when I explain. Yeah, no. Yeah, and 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 it. That what it taught me, and what what I feel it's helping me with now. Where I'm I'm working now also with with other novelists, and but also when I work with people who write sitcom, a lot of people come to me with sitcom, exactly as I was doing there, and say, this is this is me really this is this is the story of my life this is the story of when I worked here or when I worked there and and the phrase that I often say to people is I uh, give uh give yourself um, permission to lie about yourself and and fictionalize who you are and coming back to what I'm saying is 
hang on to the emotional truths of who mm. you are, but let go of everything else. And once I did that, it, 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 I started to invent more stories around the things that were true. And so by the time I got to the second book, even though a lot of the events were uh, were as they had happened, you know, but I I actually brought more uh, fiction into it. And I had one really interesting um, thing that I did, which was this, uh, uh, part of this, this second book is around the time of the Falklands War. And mm-hmm. I had quite an interest, I was a journalist at that time, and quite an interesting thing happened while I was doing that. So I wrote, I fictionalised the whole thing. Um, and then, but there was one little part of it that was actually true that that was needed to kind of hold the story together or so I thought Uh, and I I was workshopping it with a group of people and they all said oh I really like that Falkland story but there's this one little bit in the middle that just doesn't ring true and that was the one true bit and Mm -hmm. so I had to I then had to go away and find a way to to fictionalize the one true bit that I that I had in there so that was really interesting yeah that is fascinating and when you say workshopping what do you mean by that I did a course after I'd written the first draft of the second novel I did a course at uh, the city lit in uh, London and uh, they you can just uh, and and Wherever you live in Britain, I'm sure that, that you can find all around the US, you know, you can join a group of writers mm-hmm. and you just, you share your work with with writers and they're not necessarily professionals or anyone, anything, but going back to what I was saying at the beginning, you know, some people are very good at pinpointing what's wrong with your work much better than you are. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I feel for all my ability to, to edit and look at other people's work and look at my own work, I still am aware that I need other people to read what I've written. So um, I, I, you are, I think you are always too much inside your project and you, you, you have to find a way of stepping out and that's where you get other people to critique it. As long as they don't go, oh, this is a pile of rubbish or, you know, what do you think you're trying to do? You try try and as long as they have positive stuff to say as well, you know. Or. Yeah, yeah, totally. And what other novelists or comedy creators do you really admire for their work? I know it's not easy the question. There's so many brilliant ones. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess everybody has the people who uh, inspired them. I mean, I was very inspired. I didn't really read books until I was a teenager, and then I kind of suddenly devoured them. And uh, I. Um, I was a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut when I was mm. a teenager, um, and I loved his books. I still occasionally look at them, and, and they are very, very funny, brilliantly funny books. Um, and s- since then as well, I've become much more interested in – I mean, my, I, I, I loved um, the – political books of uh, Trollope, Anthony Trollope. They're, they're great stories and they tell great, they're, they're, they're great historical fiction. They have the backdrop of the 
what's going on. So I've been quite influenced by them. But mostly now I like mainly uh, contemporary uh, women writers. So people like Barbara Kingsolver, Anne Tyler, mm. Elizabeth mm. Strout, um, Margaret Atwood. So those are the sort of people that I read a, a, a lot of uh, books of. But actually I've been reading across so many genres, partly just to to, to familiarise myself with different types of book. And the the one that I really like that's been a real revelation to me in the last year or so is uh, Sophie Kinsella. And mm. um, there's a lot of, there's a huge amount of snobbery in, in uh, fiction. Mm. And because Sophie Kinsella writes uh, romantic fiction, so all the books, all her book covers look like all the romantic fiction book covers, you know, they have the sort of slightly cartoonish couple and the champagne glass and a mm. you know, pair of stilettos in the corner. That and and they have kind of slightly, uh, slightly wacky fonts, comic comic songs fonts on the front cover, and you just think, oh god, you know. Uh, um, but actually, Sophie Kinsella is the funniest writer, I would say, writing today. I think she's the sort of PG Woodhouse of our generation. <laughs> Mm. Oh, I love it. Yeah, there's going to be a rom-com episode coming up uh, in November, I think. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, so have to listen out for yeah. that one. Because like you say, there's yeah. so many brilliant, brilliant writers in that genre. And there can be so much snobbery. And I've just got no time for any of it in any arts mm. field because there's so many brilliant practitioners in every genre, isn't there? Whether it's yeah, yeah. horror, yeah. comedy, I love it. Mm. So um, any parting advice as we come to the end of this interview for... <laughs> Writers, like you are so good at encouraging writers. You do so much sort of teaching and consulting and script work too. So for writers, um, you can take it either way, whether you want to address writers who want to bring more funny into their fiction specifically or writers who um, just don't feel brave enough to venture into comedy or who want to take it to the next level. What's um, some of the advice that you like to give? Well, I think that's definitely uh, both. Both of those are covered, really, and uh, this, this is something that, uh, again, I, I, I do notice, and I, and I notice it very much from uh, women uh, more more than men. Um, surprisingly, surprise, surprise, mm. is that women will say, uh, "I'm interested in writing comedy, but I'm not sure if this is funny or whatever," mm. and or they'll say, "I don't really, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to write comedy." Whereas men will say, I've got this really funny idea, it's this, this, this. And actually, you know, there, there, there is so much. I, I, I think people, first of all, people are, are, are worried that they'll look stupid, you know, if they write comedy and it falls flat. And, and I can understand that. And I, 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 I don't know if you've noticed this as well, uh, Danielle, but I mean, I've certainly noticed it when, if you're watching a drama series on the telly or something and you don't like it very much, you just say... I don't like this very much. But if you're watching a comedy show on the telly and you're not liking it, you get really angry. What? Mm. What? How do what do these people think this is funny? What the hell are they going on about? And what's this audience laughing in the background? What the hell is that about? You know. And so, I think people fear writing comedy because it it, it very much it, it it's so subjective. But mm. I do think to to, to address the other side of what you were saying there as well is that, and I did mention it earlier, I think writing comedy and writing drama, the, a lot of it is very, very similar. It's all about character. 
and it's all about having a, 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 a good story to tell. And then it's and it's about the world that you create. So those are, those are the things. I come back to it. You will need a character and an obstacle. And so the main difference, I'd say, one of the main differences of the comedy and drama is in drama, the obstacle is usually another person. In mm. comedy, it's usually yourself. And mm. that's really kind of the main difference. And the other one as well, I mean, if you're writing a, like a sitcom or something, you um, compared to a drama, you know, co- uh, dra- drama characters go on a journey and they learn at the end of it. Comedy characters get to the end, but they don't learn. And that's, that's another thing but you're still writing compelling characters you're still writing stories that people want to know what's going to happen next what's going to happen next and you're still creating a world whether it's um the world of uh, uh, uh hogwarts school you know or or again come back to faulty towers you know you the the, the there's a beauty and a consistency to the world that once you're in there you feel you, you belong in there and that's that's what you're kind of going for I suppose brilliant that's a lovely place to end and great encouragement there thank you where should people go to find out more about you and your work um well if you want to uh work with me and uh, on writing comedy writing just go to my uh Dave Cohen website davecohen.org.uk and I run various uh, courses and uh, classes and things um but then also if you are uh, for, for the novels you can get um, and find out more about um, them at uh, davidjcohenauthor.com. I had to change my name for the algorithms for the novels mm. rather than yeah. the uh, other books, so uh, um, which is a bit annoying, but there you go. <laughs> Perfect. I'll make sure those go in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Dave. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.